Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, world. Welcome once again to Tuesday Talk with Key West Lou. I am your host, Louis Patron. Welcome back, my friends. This has been a very political week. Uh, every week is a political week during this campaign. I am fed up uh, right to the top of my neck. I, I, who am a political junkie, am sick and tired of this campaign. First campaign in my life that I have not enjoyed. Uh, it's trash. We are not talking poli- po- We are not talking policy. I blame Trump primarily for this. He has turned the campaign into not quite a gutter campaign, but darn close to it. Uh, Hillary can't seem to pick it up out of the gutter. Uh, So I'm not going to talk about politics tonight. You get all you want to hear this past week from televisions, from the newspapers, the magazines, and the radio. I'm going to digress and talk about some things that you may know about but don't know enough about because enough has not been shared with you or with us by the media. So I'm I'm going to try to go a step further with these items tonight. I call them eye-openers to give you a little more detailed background. I want to start with, uh, do you remember two weeks ago, very easy, there was this picture of a little boy in Afghanistan, a three-year-old boy, he was sitting in the back of an ambulance. The seats were orange. Uh, there was a, at least one seat on each side of him, unoccupied. Uh, he was sitting there, short pants, T-shirt, little jacket, uh, dirty. Uh, he good-looking kid. His face on one side was coated with what appeared to be blood, and he just was looking blank, and a picture had been taken of him, and it was run internationally, as it should be, to show the horror of war. Uh, Well, that must have brought back to mind, it didn't for me immediately, but some people in this country, a similar type photo uh, that was taken in the Vietnam War a few years ago. But I remember it at the time. Now, there was a picture of a nine-year-old girl, her name Kim Phuc, and she was running down a street, people running around her, but she seemed to be out, and you could see her, she was clear, clearly in sight, clearly in view, no clothes, screaming because she had been napalmed, firebomb had dropped on her, and her genitals had been napalmed, and these were visible. Showed you the horror of war, unquestionably, uh, I think even worse than this picture of this boy sitting in the ambulance in the Afghanistan photo, both horrible, one more horrible than the other. However, well, someone took that picture of uh, this nine-year-old girl from the Afghanistan war and ran it on Facebook, (laughs) you know, and put a comment in, look how terrible this was. And guess what? Facebook took it off. Facebook took it off, took the comment off, and said it was their right, and because they have a firm prohibition against nudity. How stupid. They have a prohibition against nudity in their rules. And they also said, this is our ballgame. This is our business. We own the company. And if you look into it, Facebook does own its own company. Uh, it, it, it is their company. It is their ball game. They can do what they want with it. And here they were exercising their right. It was sort of like, 
he who pays the fiddler calls the tune. And so they refused to put it back on. Uh, I think it's stupid. A lot of people are saying that it was an abuse of power. I agree. I don't. I wouldn't call it an abuse of power. I think it was a stupid act on the part of Facebook. Why the hell they pull something like this? Uh, because this picture is a okay. Uh, if you want to see the horror of war, this little girl burning, running down the street, bear. What more do you need? In fact, you don't even need a comment. The picture speaks for itself. So I wanted to bring to your attention, if you were not aware, that this photo has been pulled by Facebook. Which now brings me to Wells Fargo. You've been reading about Wells Fargo this past week and how the government has fined them $185 million. Lots of money. Civil fine against Facebook uh, because they did some bad things. Typical of a bank. Remember this. Wells Fargo was one of the banks that screwed us in 2008 with the mortgage problem. They were right up there in front, and they had to be bailed out with your taxpayer dollars. They had to be bailed out. They had to have their asses saved, and they were saved. Well, it seems these bankers think they can do anything they want, and they do. You know it. I know it. Big corporations, big banks, they do whatever they want, and no one can seem to touch them, even the government. Our government, what does it say about going after the banks and putting people in jail who do wrong things at banks? No one went to jail for 2008, the mortgage situation. Nobody goes to jail for any bad things because our government says the banks are too big. They're too big to go bust. They're too big to prosecute. Too big to go bust, too big to prosecute. Well, here they got away with murder in 2008, Wells Fargo. And it was revealed last week that they are paying a fine of $185 million because for years, not one year, two years, three years, for years, they had a program going to increase their business. And they wanted their employees to work at increasing Wells Fargo's business. They pushed their employees. They promoted them. They gave them, you know, they gave them all kinds of goodies, trips, bonuses, do get us more accounts. We need more business. So the employees went out and did it. Now, involved here, what I'm going to talk about are 2 million deposit and credit card accounts. 2 million deposit and credit card accounts. And what they did, uh, these employees took the bank and credit card accounts for existing customers without telling these customers, and they opened new accounts for them and gave them new credit cards. So now they had twice as many accounts, twice as many credit cards. They also shifted some money from the real account, the legitimate account, to the phony accounts. They charged their customers for opening the accounts, transferring the money, and everything else. Uh because they had to meet sales goals. These were goals that had to be met so Wells Fargo would do a bigger business. Now, this is pretty bad. This is widespread illegality, as the uh, agreement, the order, the court order says, but they didn't charge them criminally. They're, ma they're paying a fine, just like all these banks do all the time, $185 million. Well, let me tell you, if they can afford to pay a $185 million fine here, they made a hell of a lot more than that off this game of opening new accounts, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, this thing has been under investigation for three or four years. It finally got finalized and signed. Uh, paperwork takes a long time. Making the deal takes a long time. As part of this whole arrangement, Wells Fargo, to show we want to do the right thing, laid off. They fired 5,300 employees that were involved in the scam. 5,300 employees they fired who were involved in the scam. Well, that makes sense, too. Nobody. Then these were some high echelon people, by the way, as well as moving down the, the ladder of responsibility to low echelon. So that's that. They pay the money. Nobody goes to jail, which is absolutely wrong because I am of the philosophy. Take one of these big bankers. Take two of these big bankers. They do something wrong. Don't say they're too big to prosecute, too big to pursue. Take them and charge them criminally. Indict them. Give them a fair trial. And if they're convicted, send them to jail. This garbage will stop immediately. One banker sees another banker's going to go to jail. Everyone is going to have clean skirts from now on. Now, to make this thing even worse, <laughs> stay with me, this, is, this came out only in the last 48 hours, and that's why I'm into this with you. Uh, I, it, it seems that crime pays because this was a crime they committed the bank. Wrongdoing has its bonuses, another way to put it. The high up echelon person at the bank, bank official in charge of this whole thing, in charge of the unit, they called it a unit to increase business, uh, was Carrie Tolstat, T-O-L-S-T-E-D-T. She has worked 27 years for Wells Fargo. She resigned in July. When she resigned, she received a payout. Her walking away bonus was $124.6 million, million, $124.6 million for leading the unit of 5,300 people that did all these bad illegal things. That's what she got for doing it and running it. And she was complimented by the CEO of Wells Fargo. You did a great job, lady. Thank God you were with us. And then three weeks later, we find out that this is a bad thing, $185 million fine, et cetera, et cetera. So what's Lewis saying? It goes on and on. They do wrong. And look, think back. Every bank that has screwed up since 2008, the CEO or some big shot in the bank who has had to leave has walked away with multi-million dollar bonus. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not right. And again, Lewis says, let's prosecute some of these people. This, this garbage would stop immediately. Now I want to go to the FDA. Uh, I do not understand government sometimes. You do not understand government sometimes. Uh, they do, our government does things that are nonsensical. And here is a perfect example. The FDA recently banned a specific antibacterial Chemi uh, chemical, antibacterial chemical in soap. It's called, let's see, my son, it's called triclosan, T-R-I-C-L-O-S-A-N, triclosan. And this is in soap to help keep, keep, kill bacteria. It's like the st stuff that initially was in the hospital. The doctor would come in your room and on his way out, he'd take, press the thing on the wall and wash his hands with the soap that was there. Uh, 
and they've been using it for years. Don't know if anyone ever got sick. Well, two weeks ago, the FDA banned the use of the this antibacterial chemical in soap. Soap industry got mad. They said, we don't know if anything bad ever happened. Understand this. The government said, here's what the FDA said, it was dangerous because over a period of a long time, use of the soap containing that chemical could lead to new strains of resistant bacteria. Makes sense. Can also disrupt normal development of the reproductive system and metabolism. I must have a problem because I have a metabolic problem. I can't lose weight. I keep gaming. Anyhow, they also, <laughs> they did this not only to soap. They were looking at other things, one being toothpaste, Colgate Total, the biggest toothpaste seller Colgate has. They have had it since 1997. Contains a combination of the chemical uh, triclosan and fluoride. And th this is toothpaste. You put it in your mouth, you rub it on your gums. They prepared a study immediately, Colgate. And they, they showed the, the FDA that, gee whiz, using it in our toothpaste doesn't hurt. It actually helps. And these are the positives. Colgate said, using our toothpaste containing this triclosan for a period of six to nine months. Listen to these numbers now. Reduced plaque by 41%, gum inflammation by 22%, and gum bleeding by 48%. So FDA said, okay, Colgate, you can keep it in your toothpaste, this chemical which we consider dangerous. Uh, well, there is a Rolf Holden out there. He's director of environmental uh, severity at Arizona State University. He is the triclosan expert in this country. He has followed it for years, okay? And he says, I don't understand. He says, soap on your hands, only a small amount gets into the body. But through the gums, and I quote, chemicals in the bloodstream. You follow me? You use it on your gums. We all know we bleed a little bit sometimes. In any event, the pores open. It goes directly into the bloodstream, this chemical. On your hands, it's rare. It's going to get into your bloodstream. So why this judgment that it's okay with toothpaste but not with soap? Uh, I'll tell you one thing. Colgate had a better lobby, lobbying group uh, than the soap people had. Uh, also, I want to make this observation. I've said this before. The FDA is much like our Congress. They are pliable. They are owned. They are directed. They are influenced by the corporations and their lobbyists. This is a disgusting thing I'm going to share with you. Now, I've talked about this. Oh, I talked about this for the first time on the television show I did for three years down here. And this goes back, I stopped doing it six or seven years ago. Uh, I want to talk about debtors' prisons for children, children who go to juvenile delinquency uh, institutions, jails for kids. Right? We, we have had, and this first came up, let me tell you how this first came to my attention back in the TV days. Uh, 
the jails, we were getting into jails being owned by private corporations. In other words, the, the governmental agency, state, county, municipality, signs a contract with a, a public jail group, and they're going to run the jails. They're going to provide the protection, the guards, the food, the medical attention, everything. And the government knows that they have one set fee to pay. That this is going to cost them X number of dollars a year. No surprises. The public, uh, the private rather, corporation takes the hit if it's too expensive that year. Well, whenever you get a mix, you get private into the public area like this, you have to have corruption. It's inherent in man's nature. Two judges, this is how I got into this thing seven years ago, two judges in Pennsylvania, juvenile court judges, all they deal with are bad kids, purportedly bad kids, began sending over a period of several years uh, kids to this one jail that was run by a private corporation. And they were sending the kids to jail for bullshit things. Talk back to the teacher two days. You get in jail. Uh, late to school three times in one month, four days in jail. Parents were getting upset. Many of these students were A students, and they were getting, they're mentally, they were getting their lives screwed up by this happening. Guess what? It was discovered that these two judges had each made over a million dollars a year, a million dollars over this period in kickbacks from the jail. The jail would say, for every kid you send me, for 24 hours, I give you X number of dollars. Each of these two juvenile judges, court judges, made in excess of a million dollars sending kids to jail for nothing. They're now doing 20 years, each of them. They should do life. Which now brings me to what we call debtors' prisons for children. The private jails are run the same way for children as they are for adults. But we're talking about children now because this thing's gotten out of hand with the kids. It was recently uh, revealed, okay, there was a detailed report about what's been happening the last five years in the prisons, privately run prisons for children in the United States. Forty-one states use private jails for juveniles, for children. When the child is sent to jail, or sent to this, they don't call it a jail, it's a detention facility, for want of a better word, it's the responsibility of the parents to pay the fine and pay the court costs. Well, some parents are poor, and they can't afford to pay the fine or the court costs. Their child does not get out of jail until the court costs and the fines are paid, and there's interest added on to that. And so the kid who was going there for three months might be there nine months later because the parents could not afford to pay the fine and the uh court costs, and it got bigger and bigger because of the interest added on. In addition, when you are in a private jail, the government doesn't pay for your meals. The government doesn't pay for the electricity in your cell. You, you pay everything. It's like when you go to the hospital. They even charge you for the ink and the fountain pens and the ballpoint pens, rather. You pay for everything. So the cost of the meals, the cost of the medical, the cost of this and that is added on to the fines and the court costs. It's an astronomical amount after a while. And these children never get out of jail. And these private jails keep making more and more money because the longer these kids are in, the more they make. Isn't right. You know it. I know it. 
America, it's got to come to America's attention. They have to know this is happening. That's what I'm trying to do is address it, I guess. Uh, it's not fair. We are punishing children. I'm talking about kids 8, 9, 10, 13, 15 years old because their parents are poor. The children are paying for their parents' poverty. This is an American. This is wrong. It should not be tolerated. Some interesting work numbers here. I, I like number statistics. Sometimes they're true. Sometimes they're false. I share with you some numbers that I think are, are good here. There was a time. We're going to talk now. I'm going to talk about people employed by the government, federal, state, and local. People in the government's employ, as opposed to people who work in manufacturing. Not all jobs, just manufacturing. And this is based on numbers which have been kept by the United States data. Uh, I'm sorry, have been kept by the data kept by the Bureau of Labor Statistics of the United States government. This started in 1939. As of last this past August, which is last month, uh, there were in this country government employees, federal, state, and local, in the amount of 22,213,000. The manufacturing sector, as you would guess, was much less, only 12,281,000. A 9 million difference, a 9 million difference. 9 million more government workers today rather than those in manufacturing. Well, from 1939 to 1989, there were more manufacturing jobs than there were government jobs. Then in 89, the numbers got close, and since 1989, there have been more government jobs than manufacturing jobs, uh, which shows a couple of things. This is dramatic proof, okay, that we have lost manufacturing in this country big time. Big time, we have lost manufacturing jobs. They've gone to Mexico and Canada through NAFTA. They've gone to China. They've gone to other parts of Asia. They've gone to Europe. Uh, our jobs just keep going out of the country. Our Congress permits it each time. There's legislation required to accomplish this end. Our presidents have signed this type of legislation into law. And as a result, we don't have manufacturing jobs anymore. Ain't no bullshit. Look at Detroit. It's very simple. The other thing is, we talk about saving money, especially the, the Republicans, the conservative side of Congress. Uh, they always want to cut back Social Security, cut back medical care. Uh, more money is being spent now because we have all these government employees to pay them. They do work but to pay them. And so our cost of government has increased dramatically just by the number of employees we have. Uh, so it's not a good situation. I don't see this ever changing. I think one of the things we failed to learn as the numbers were dropping in manufacturing jobs from they started diminishing around late 1970s, 1980. We did not pay attention until things were bad. And then what happened, our communities all thought it was all going to come back. What left us, those plants, those factories, those manufacturing jobs, were going to return. Pie in the sky. They didn't return, and I don't think they're ever going to return. We, gotta, we have to find other ways to train 
and employ these people who are unemployed because of the lack of the of these manufacturing jobs. So that's the story there. We had very few manufacturing jobs. We knew it, but we have a dramatic increase in government jobs. Which brings me to this. There is something called prime age men. It's, that's the, the label. Prime age men. Sounds like prime age steak. Prime age men are those between 25 and 54. 25 and 54 years of age, prime age men. Unemployment at the present time is 4.9%. Uh, the number sucks. We all know this. I know it. You know it. It's not a legitimate number. It's not a fair number. Uh, it's been said for years. It's not Obama's fault. Every president for the last 50 years, every Congress for the last 50 years has used this computation, this measure that brings it to 4.9%, which is a good number under the way we do it. But it's an invalid number. Trump is right in this regard, but he's not telling us anything we didn't know uh, because this is the way it is. They, the, the computation does not include two major things. It does not include older men, and they describe this by the label men, and that's why I'm using men as opposed to men and women. But I suspect women are included in the definition, but I'm not certain. It does not include older men in the labor pool that's uh, counted here. Nor does it consider take into account the prime aged men between 25 and 54 percent, uh, 54 years of age. Now, how many prime aged men, 25 to 54, are not in the work numbers used in the computation? 83 percent of them. 83 percent of the prime age workers did not work last year. Okay, now, you got to go back now to the 1960s. In the early 1960s, nearly 100% of prime age workers worked. Today, only 17%. If 83% aren't working, that means only 17% are working. That another way of putting that is one in six of these men, 25 to 54 years of age, are working. That's all. Five aren't working. These numbers, one in six, are worse than the employment, unemployment numbers in the Great Depression. Depression of 29, its worst year was 1940, just before World War II, are worse than the worst year of the Great Depression. And again, that's because these prime age workers unemployed are not working because they stopped looking for a job. They have given up. Some of them are homeless. Some of them, they, they've lost their unemployment, by the way. These are people who have, are no longer on unemployment. Once you're off unemployment, they can extend it for a million years, but once it stops, you no longer exist in the computation. So that's how we come down with 4.9%, which really is about 20%. Uh, and you should be aware of this. You should be aware of this. This is a very sad situation, and I'm saying, not saying because I think Obama's done a terrific job bringing us from 10 to 4.9 percent, but he really probably brought us from 20 to 10 percent. Uh, and we should understand this because we got this great group of virile men out there, 25 to 54. 83 percent of them are sitting on their asses. They've given up. They've given up hope and everything else. I want to talk quickly. My Syracuse University. 
I know some of you who listen to Syracuse fans who write to me. It was a sad day last Friday night. We hoped we had a better football team this year because we defeated uh, Colgate the week before decidedly. But Colgate was a nothing team to beat. Uh, what happened last Friday, we played Louisville. Louisville gave us the worst beating in the history of Syracuse University football. 62-28. to 28. I watched it on television. It was like somebody took a knife and put it into my chest. It cut my heart. 62 to 28. Uh, this Saturday, we play South Florida. We're 14-point underdogs. Uh, that, that don't mean anything to me because we're 14-point underdogs to Louisville. Anyhow, it's going to be interesting. I, I dread the thought of another bet. We have great basketball years. We haven't had a good football year in almost 20 years. That is the show for this week. I thank you once again for joining me. Uh, I hope I have provided you with some interesting information. Uh, I love doing the show. You people, I have more and more followers every week. It's fantastic. I now have major advertisers, as you can tell. I'm impressed. (laughs) I'm not saying this in a bragging fashion. I'm impressed. Uh, and I, I'm glad. I'm glad you joined with me to listen to the show. The show is archived, and I know a lot of you listen to it on Blog Talk Radio, YouTube, and it's linked to my Key West Lou website. Podcast, Blog Talk Radio, is here, but it's really the wave of the future. In five years, it's going to be fantastic. Thank you again for joining me. I look forward to being with you next week. <laughs>